Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming. My name is Dr. David Smith. I'm the academic director of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Before we begin proceedings today, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gaddock people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. The mission of the United States Studies Centre is to deepen Australia's understanding of the United States. And you cannot hope to understand the United States or Canada or indeed Australia without understanding the central role that race, racism and the construction of a racial order plays at all levels of our society. This is a conversation we are traditionally not good at having in Australia. Black Lives Matter has substantially changed the conversation about this in the United States and is changing it around the world. And we are very glad to have two of the founders of the Black Lives Matter networks here today to help us have a conversation. So I would like to introduce, first of all, Patrice Cullors. Patrice, who identifies herself as a wife of Harriet Tubman, is an artist, organiser and freedom fighter from Los Angeles. She's a Fulbright scholar and performance artist, currently touring a multimedia piece called Power from the Mouths of the Occupied. She's a popular public speaker, an NAACP history maker and has been honoured with too many awards to mention here, but they of course include the Sydney Peace Prize, which she and Rodney um, are, are here for. So in addition to co-founding... In addition to co-founding a global movement with a hashtag, um, Patrice has worked with many organisations to respond to law enforcement violence, including the American Civil Liberties Union. She's called for the abolition of the prison industrial complex, noting that there was a moment in history when no one believed chattel slavery would be abolished. 2018 will see the release of her memoir, When They Call You a Terrorist. You can pre-order it today. Uh, there will be a sign-up sheet uh, up, up the front here and um, also up the back. Rodney Tavirlis, uh originally from Haiti, when he came to the United States as a refugee, he's an activist, he's a community organiser, he's a choreographer, he's a professional dancer, he's a facilitator, and he's a storyteller. He is based in Toronto, he works a lot in Calgary, He's the co-founder of the Toronto chapter of Black Lives Matter. He served as the queer and trans commissioner for the Canadian Federation of Students Ontario, where he developed the, the provincial anti-homophobia, transphobia campaign and action guide. His writing's been featured in the Toronto Star, the Huffington Post and the Oxford Handbook of Artistic Citizenship. To moderate this conversation...
To moderate this conversation, today we are also very lucky to have Stan Grant, one of Australia's leading journalists and commentators. He is currently the ABC's Indigenous Affairs Editor and will be the ABC's Chief Asia Correspondent. He is a Wiradjuri man, originally from Griffith in New South Wales. He's held numerous international posts with CNN. I highly recommend his most recent book, Talking to My Country, a memoir and meditation on Aboriginal and Australian life. During the American statues controversy, Stan recently called for the plaque to be changed at the James Cook statue in Hyde Park, an eminently sensible and modest proposal which got <laughs> a predictable reaction in the Australian media. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so I will now hand over to Stan Grant to begin the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I won't go into the background of Black Lives Matter. We'll, that, that will uh, come out in the discussion, how it began and what the movement is about. And you're all here today because you have some awareness and interest in it. But something that David said right at the start there, and I wanted to go right to this, and that is the fundamental question of race. In the United States, you have a declaration that declares all men, as it was then in, in those terms, but to mean all people more broadly, are equal, except for the people who are being held in bondage. And all of these years later, you are still having to say black lives matter mm -hmm. in a country that is founded on a declaration of equality. What does that say about the United States and the black struggle? Um, well, first, I just want to thank the University of Sydney. Thank you so much for um, hosting this panel. And uh, it's been a whirlwind of a week. Uh, and it's good to just be here with students uh, as we try to ask some of, I think, and, and grapple with some of the hardest questions in this current historical moment. Uh, you know, what's interesting about growing up in the United States as a black person and having to unlearn and relearn my own history is um, there was never an intention for black people to survive. Uh, I think part of what happened when black folks were stolen uh, and brought over to labor for free is uh, that white people didn't have foresight. Uh, they weren't thinking, oh, and then when this is over, what are we going to do? Um, they were thinking, we need to build this country and we need free labor and here the people are going to do it. Um, and capitalism operates um, in desperation. Um, capitalism doesn't have foresight. It's not about um, kindness, care, humanity, dignity. Um, it's about the theft of that. Um, it's about greed. And so uh, I think as you know, we look back in history, uh, the white men who were building and destroying, the country, destroying and building the country, because there was indigenous people on the land too, uh, that we recognize that uh, part of the destroying of the country um, was not thinking about how black people were going to be a part of it. Uh, and once they were forced to think about how black people were going to be a part of it, there's been an intention to um, decimate, denigrate, um, and re-enslave black people ever since. Uh, and, that, and, and that belonging was always conditional, wasn't exactly. it? Um, even to the point of being judged at the value of three-fifths. Exactly. Another, another human being. Exactly. And I think to, the, to that point, uh, once slavery was, quote, abolished, and many people put that in quotes, um, there was always the 13th Amendment. 
And how many of you um, seen um, Ava DuVernay's 13th, raise your hand, right? So, and which she clearly documents that slavery wasn't actually abolished because there's whole groups of people inside US state prisons and jails that are indeed enslaved. And so, and this is where the conversation of abolition comes in. We could talk about more, th more of that later, but I think it's become central in the US context um, and I would argue the global context around black people. Ta-Nehisi Coates, the, the uh, author in the United States, is in his um, book Between the World and Me, spoke about the, what he called the destruction of the black body mm -hmm. as being heritage mm -hmm. and tradition mm -hmm. in, in America. Um, do you feel that sense of, of what he sees as an assault? on your person growing up as a black person in America? Oh, I mean, definitely. Uh, I think part of my own um, lived experience as a black person in the U.S. is one that is um, centered around the decimation of my own community, witnessing it. Um, we are the generation of over-policed bodies, of over-incarcerated. We're the generation that witness police raids, were the generation that witnessed the war on drugs, the war on gangs. And um, in my own lived experience and being in community with other poor black people in particular, uh, were the generation that was completely discarded mm. and purposefully so. And I think um, the moment I realized that, um, the moment I realized that it wasn't my single mother's fault that she was poor and it, actually it was a system that was designed to keep us poor uh, was in fact because of the U.S. prison system. And my brother who has schizoaffective disorder, instead of receiving care, instead of receiving um, true uh, mental health care, he was given a prison cell. He was given um, uh, police brutality. Uh, and no country cares for its people if that's what it relies on. Uh, Rodney, um, from your perspective, Haiti, refugee to America living in Canada. But outside of the tradition, I suppose, that Patrice is talking about historically, how do you enter that discussion and, and that, that heritage and that yeah. understanding? Does it bring a different perspective? I think so. I think that <clears throat> I didn't really identify or knew or really related to blackness until I moved to the States. You know, mm. Haiti is... It's we're all black. We're there's all, no there's no one there to tell you exactly, black. Right? We're all <laughs> our con the, the, the idea of black and white. There was nothing to juxtapose uh, ourselves with. We were just Haitians. We knew that we were enslaved. We knew that a number of us uh, were connected for, and, and have line lineage from Arawaks and the Taino, um, the indigenous peoples of the land. Um, but I think that you know, moving to the states, and I was nine when I moved to the states, and that was the first time that I had to grapple with oh no, like this country really situates and really positions race in a pretty deliberate way. Uh, I moved to southern Florida, of all, of all places, <laughs> um, Florida, right? And I think that at the t that was really the moment where I started really grappling and, underst and understanding mm. how races uh, played out. And you realize it's a social construction social and it is a power construction. It is a power construction, right, absolutely. You know, I, I, I automatically... Um, I jumped class classes. I automatically um, un understood my relationship to police very differently. I mean class. I mean like class, uh, class, yeah, economic, class. economic, yeah, economic um, uh, levels. I think that I automatically understood myself and my community and who I was 
very differently at age nine. You know, I didn't really grow up understanding uh, how white supremacy or how, how oppression or however, whatever you want to call it, how it really manifested until, you know, came in, as a nine-year-old told by my parents, just so you know, <laughs> just so you know, you know, like not everyone is trustworthy. Just so you know, be careful of police. Just so you know, you can't do this. Just so you know, these are the realities of what it's like to be a dark-skinned human being in that, this country. That, that's something that ta Kelly's raised as well. It really struck me in reading his book when he said, when he was a boy, he had to think about coming home. Mm -hmm. Which way do I walk home? Absolutely. Who am I seen with? Who do I talk to? How do they react to me? Who do I look in the eye? How do I dress? Do I look anyone? How do I dress? Mm -hmm. um, and you're navigating this at a really young age. Really young and he sure. said with the awareness that to fail that test could be to lose your life. Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, I, Hades... Um, academic system is different. So I came in and, and, uh, and right away my teachers identified that I was good at math. And there was a sense of an investment in me to whitenize, I guess, if that's a word. Like mm -hmm. there was an, an investment in me to, mm. to, just so you know, you just have to not sag like the other black kids, mm -hmm. you know, like dress this particular way. Once you're ingesting this culture, this is the way for you to move, mm -hmm. speak like this. Um, you know, as I was learning English, I was taught So by, to, be acceptable to be acceptable is to be, to be more white. Exactly, to be respectable. There was a, don't learn this lingo, learn this version of English. Mm -hmm. So really, like, that colonial uh, framework was, um, is often for a lot of us who, who migrated, there's, there was a choice. There's, you know, you're you, you, you given a choice of how you, mm. you are to grow up, how you're supposed to shape yourself, and it's incredibly filtered. Is, is that different, do you think, from the inheritance that you have, Patrice, coming out of that deeply rooted tradition? I know Obama had spoken about this. Yeah, he was a black man in America, but he didn't come out of that same slave tradition. Um, he had a white mother. There was a, a, a process of identification and finding his place. Is, is there a difference in the way that that, that experience is lived out, so even between you and Rodney? I, I think it's, I think there's a particular experience Rodney has, but I do think there's a way in which assimilation um, becomes seductive for people mm. of color in general. There is, you, you grow up very early on seeing what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, who gets to choose this way, who gets to choose this way, and I think, you know, similar to Rodney, I was labeled gifted very early on, mm. so it meant that I was separated literally from the rest of my siblings and most of my community yeah. and bussed off to other neighborhoods, Likewise. mostly white communities. Um, and in those white communities became the token, right? <laughs> became the, the voice box for all black people. <laughs> well, while my siblings were um, sent to local schools who were over-policed, mm -hmm. um, and uh, most of them didn't actually get to finish their schooling. And so there's always an investment in some black people just like there was an investment in Obama as mm. like the token. There's an investment in some of us, right? It's the talented 10 theory. And then the rest of us are disposable. And even the ones that we're invested in, we can be become disposable as well. Well, well you, you mentioned me just coming in. Even now, you have to negotiate that, that success as a black person in America. When your brothers are pulled over by the police, you were telling me, yeah. they'll often say to them, why do you speak so well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're better than us? Exactly. Why do you speak like a white person? Yeah. Yeah. So again, there is that negotiation Absolutely. always, isn't there? And yet, after the election of Obama, we heard the phrase, 
and it was used by some black people. No more excuses. Uh, Post-racial America, <laughs> it has arrived. What was... Th and there must have been, in, on one superficial level, something very attractive in that. Oh, yeah. um, there's a black man in the White House. What more do we have to complain about? You can achieve that. Yes, yes. I, I mean... It was not just seductive, it was, it felt like a victory. Mm. We have to remember that. Many of us on the left joined the campaign to get him elected. We were, we just yes, went we through can. Yeah. eight years of grueling Bush administration. Yeah. We went through the war in Iraq. We, were, we went through homeland security. Yeah. Our families were being surveilled. Muslim families were torn apart. The heightened militarization of Los Angeles and the United States was huge. And so Obama comes in and he looks like Jesus. <laughs> and we're like, we're being saved. I mean, it was a very intense emotional experience to see a black person succeed in a particular way. And we have to also remember racism doesn't just, it's not just about the material impact it has on us. There are real psychological impacts. Absolutely. So to see a black person, and not just any black person, a black person with a black wife mm. and black kids, be in the White House. With a name like Barack Obama. Exactly. Uh, you know, There's like something. Bar Barack Hussein exactly. Obama. Remember that uh, Hussein, y'all. Yeah. 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 You know, they're still trying to look for his birth certificate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's something that happens in your body that you can't help. You can't help but feel a sense of relief after having George Bush Jr. for eight years and everything he did to us. But very quickly, within the first year, many of us were like, oh, damn. What, he was disappointing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> incredibly. Yeah. He was incredibly <laughs> disappointing. And uh, he would say, <laughs> Rodney, did, did you share that sense of first elation and then disappointment? Uh, my parents actually felt regret for leaving. Because we, <laughs> uh, we you're in Canada watching. Yeah, like, we, we moved to, to, yeah, to, to the U.S. in 99. <laughs> Bush got elected in 2000. Bush's said, brother, We're out of here. Yeah, <laughs> Bush's brother was Jeb, and he was right, governor Florida. of Florida. Yeah. We were just... We left, you know, we left in 2006, and that was just really, you know, the, the economic crash happened in, yeah. in 08, 09, but, like, Florida was already feeling the, the, the effects of the bubble. We, we left, and pa my parents really were like, this country has nothing left for us. <laughs> we feel as if, you know, the, this promised land that we were going to go to. Then eight years later, great. you're going, hang on. <laughs> so, and then right after, we left and came, and then Obama got elected. My parents were like, oh, no, we should have just held on. <laughs> we should have just held on. He, you know, he's, he was promising to end the wars, the wars yeah. that took a number of our cousins. He yeah. was promising to create a new, a new country in which migrants like ourselves who left feeling betrayed, my parents felt incredibly, they, were, they had regret But watching, watching on and you see him, well, he wins the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. first before he'd even ended the wars, yeah. mm -hmm. then he doesn't end them. No. Nope. And the wars continue and the, he increases the number of killings mm -hmm. orchestrated through the use of Absolutely. drones. Yes. Um, Still deported a lot of Haitians. Right? right. Obama deported the most people in his presidency than any and other And the number president. of black people killed yeah. on the streets at the hands of police yeah. escalates. Yes. It increases. How, what, how do you explain that? How do you explain that a black person in the White House reaching this moment that you'd seen as being the moment of hope delivered and then this? Because white supremacy is the rule of the land. And, and he buckled to that? Of course. And also, I think we were naive and Obama was na naive. And it's, this is not an Obama shit show. Sorry for cursing. Um, <laughs> but, 
This is more ab ab about complicating um, what it means to have someone uh, be a figurehead and be in power. He, he tried a couple of times and he got, he got slapped down. During the, during the campaign, of course, there was the issue with Reverend Wright. Yeah. And then he had to make a yeah, statement. Yeah, him. So, trying to manage that. Yes. Yeah, that, 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 that racial issue. Yes. Then there was Professor Gates being yes. arrested. arrested and, then and he came out and he, and he called the police stupid. Mm -hmm. And then quickly he got whacked and he had to step yeah. back mm -hmm. from that. Did he learn a lesson that the bargain here is we will put you in the White House, yeah. but you, can't talk but about you cannot talk about of race? No. Oh. Well, that's exactly what happened. I mean, remember, Trayvon happened. And do you remember what he said? If I had a son. Yes, it could have been Trayvon Martin. And do you remember how the right went after him? So the, the, the co that's what's complicated about what happens with Obama. And it's a lesson, it was a lesson learned for us, too, which is it's bigger than a, a president. It's bigger than the Democratic Party. And in fact, the Democratic Party is not going to save us. Um, and that's where you see the bubbling up of an uprising in our country. Because... Even un for us, so many people voted for Obama believing that shit was going to change for black people. Yeah. And it, not only did it not change, it got worse. Yeah. And so black folks were like, we're tired. We're done. Yeah. This is like, this is our, we're, our backs are up against the wall. But Rodney, it goes back to what you had to say there when you came to the States. And, and I suppose it's analogous to Obama in a sense. You're coming from the outside. Mm -hmm. You're coming to, to, to the States and they're saying, listen, there's a path for you. You're a smart kid. You can do well. Yeah. These are the rules. Um, is that the bargain you have to make to succeed, to survive? And in a sense, Obama would say, well, I was the president of the United <laughs> States, yeah. Yeah. not the president of black yeah. America. Yeah. Well, he did say that. He, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And there's this part in it that you um, – and this is why I'm glad that you're complicating the roles that you have to – play when the rules are created by a white supremacist framework or the rules are created by, by white folks. You have to play a role. You have to make a decision of where am I going to go along with it? Am I going to resist it? I had to make a decision of am I going to be okay going to a school? Similarly, I was shipped in a school that was primarily white. I mean, in my middle school, I literally could count like four or five black folks, while my sister went to a school that, uh, that had um, metal detectors, that had heavy, heavy surveillance and heavy policing. And for it's a, it's, a, it's a hard decision for parents mm. to say, if you want to go to university, if I want my child to actually be able to, to, to get an acceptance or go to a particular school, this is the path that they have to take, even though there is no sort of cultural connections to the people that we have known. Or and, and I suppose from the outside, you look at that and you go, well, does race explain everything? Race mm -hmm. may explain some things, but you mentioned class before, yeah. that you moved to a different economic class. There are other factors at play here. Clearly, you know, the myth of America is that anyone can make it here. Yes. Um, and, and people do. Yeah. And there are incredibly successful black people Absolutely. in America. So is it race or are there other complicating factors? And even within this, the community, so-called black community, different people are going to see what that means yeah. For themselves, aren't they? They're yeah. going to approach that differently. They're going Absolutely. to live that experience yeah. differently. Does race explain it all or just some of it? I think that there are other factors that, that uh, play into the ways that we move into the world. But one of the things particularly I find in the States is that race is the underpinning of how we all relate to each other. I think that, you know, I think of it like, uh, like a dam. For, um, for the structural, like, 
for a dam to maintain its structural integrity, it can't actually block out all the water, right? So if the water are black folks, like for, for a dam to actually work, it needs to allow some water to filter through and it holds back most of the water. Mm -hmm. If you block all the water, right, what happens is the water builds up and then the, the dam breaks down. Mm -hmm. So often I always, you know, that, that there's, there's space for some water to move through. There's opportunities for some waters. You can be the Oprah, you can be the mm -hmm. Obama, you can be, you know, you can be the exception to the rule, but the reality is that the dam is built to keep most of the water out. Yeah. So I, I feel like there was not, I can honestly say that there, there was, and even right now when I go back to the States, I am very cognizant of my blackness. Mm -hmm. it, is, it comes in right away, right from the border, right from customs, all the way through all of my interactions. And I think that that says a lot about the history of the U.S. That says a lot about the realities of black folks, um, the ways that we not only were brought in, but the ways that we're actually forced to live. Mm -hmm. We're forced to have the conversation on race because it's, it's, it's like it is on the surface. And, uh, Patrice, you are now part of the water that has come through. You are a voice. You have a voice. You have a platform. You have success, if you, you know, if however you want to define that. Is there, has that presented its own difficulties? Do, are there challenges for you in representing and being a voice for people who may look at you and go, you, you know, it's all right for you. You don't represent me. You're not, you know, how do you then man, you know, manage that? Every day. Um, yeah, I think it becomes complicated, right? Because for myself, Alicia and Opal, we were creating a platform for black people. We didn't think that that was then going to make us celebrities, yeah. make us uh, so visible. That wasn't the intention. Um, and part of the challenge, I think, over the last four years is trying to both remind ourselves that um, you don't build the individual, you build the team. Um, that we're, I ask myself every single day, is the work that I'm doing changing the material conditions for black people? Mm -hmm. um, because it could be very seductive to become a voice, to be the visible person, and think, yeah, things are changing. Everybody's watching me, talking to me. But that doesn't mean that it translates to what's happening on the ground in our communities for my mother, for my brother, for my siblings. And so part of our work um, isn't just about being visible. Um, it's, the, it's why I call myself an organizer. Um, if I connect myself to organizing and continue to center that as my primary work and use the visibility to expand that work, I think we're actually moving something forward. It's when we use our visibility to just be talking heads. Yeah. Um, um, and for those of us especially who help build a movement, uh, it's not useful to just be a talking head. We actually have to be rooted in our communities. Let's talk about the movement and take a step back. Trayvon Martin, 2013, and he's killed. Uh, what is it about that? There have been other deaths. There were other deaths that month, that yeah. week. Mm -hmm. What was it about that that galvanised this action and was a spark in a sense? Well, a lot of things. Um, let's just like rewind to 2012. Uh, that is the second round of Obama administration. Um, at that point, uh, multiple people had been killed. I'll take it back to Oscar Grant in 2009, New Year's Day. Um, and he's pretty much the first viral video of our generation. Um, 92 had their viral video, but I was nine, and I don't know how old you were two or something. <laughs> but, um, I was born, though. <laughs> you were, I know. I, but you were. I was, yeah, I was 30. 
many generations on this panel. Intergenerational we are. But um, you know, I'm nine, and I and I I when Rodney King happens, and I and I feel the weight of that. And obviously, I'm living in Los Angeles, so I'm seeing the uprisings. But it's different as a child. So Oscar Grant becomes the first killing that goes viral. And people hit the streets then. Many people hit the streets. But we don't have, we're not using social media in the ways that we start to use social media like we did Trayvon Martin. And I think... So that was, social media was critical here? Cri the social times. media becomes, I think, the, the centerpiece here. Absolutely. Um, it becomes a centerpiece. And ev all the factors of being black in America and being young and black in America and being, I often call our generation a forgotten generation, the generation that had completely had been destabilized, unemployment rates. Um, many of us have, you know, massive student loans where, where we are dealing with over-incarceration, over-policing. And so Trayvon Martin happens. The death happens, and we're pissed then, but then the acquittal happens. And I think that that did something to us, and it, it clicked something inside of us. And it was like the, that moment where you recognize that a country is not built for you, yeah. but built to destroy you. Yeah. And, and Alicia writes, Alicia uh, Garza writes that, that post, doesn't she? She says, you know, I love you, I love us. Mm -hmm. Black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Was it about that phrase, Rodney, that struck you? I feel like you read that. Those three words um, have so much power in them. I think that those three words really help to define what everyone, you know, black folks across the globe were feeling. I think that it, it really... Um, hence at the Black Lives Matter stands juxtaposed to reality is that we know that the laws, we know that society recognize that black lives don't matter. And that word became, those three words became an affirmation that, that really helped us orient how we were feeling. I also want to think that like one of the, around Trayvon, one of the great things was that for the first you know, for, for, for the first time in a generation, really, black folks were curating our own stories. We weren't really relying on traditional mm. media to be able to tell our stories. And it's not like Trayvon was um, an anomaly. You know, black folks have been getting killed before, but, you know, the traditional pathways to getting justice was try to hit up your local media stations, get them to actually publish the story, get that to go to the local lawmakers, et cetera, et cetera. But social media, as you mentioned, becoming really a tool where we said we can, we can tell the world. Like, black folks can be the one that says, hey, this is what's happening. Uh, this is what's happening unfiltered. How, how did it look from Canada? Was the perspective different? Uh, how was there something specific or peculiar or unique about the Canadian experience that differed? I think that it was different for black folks and it was different for non-black folks. I think non-black folks were like, oh my gosh, this is happening in the U.S. This is so <laughs> shocking. This is why we're not the U.S. Good. We made, we know folks felt really good about their like ancestral decision to like to stay north of the border. But I think that for black folks, there was an aspect of numbness. And I look back at like, we did a, a vigil for Trayvon, and I look back at the photos of this vigil, and for those of us who started BLM, we knew each other, but we were like, well, we weren't really organized. And I look back at the photo, and every single one of us were at different places in that spot. And we were, for most of us, we were numb. For a lot of us, we were like, yes, this is also happening here. Like, it was, there was a feeling of, oh, no, like, somebody's finally telling these stories and these narratives that we know to be true, that I knew to be true when I was growing up, that I know to be true in Canada. And we felt like it was really a moment for, um, for, the, for, the, for the floodgates to open, for us to actually start being honest with ourselves and our people about what's happening. And immediately, um, 
not immediately, but certainly eventually, Patrice, there is the blowback. Um, which, which blowback? Well, the, <laughs> <laughs> which leads all the way up to yeah. the election of Donald Trump, and, uh, and we, we'll get to that. But we hear blowback. people saying, black lives matter? Well, white lives matter. And in a sense, that white lives matter campaign or phrase has propelled the election of Donald Trump. There is white identity politics in, in that as well. But when people say that, what's the response? Which, when people white say... White lives matter too. Um, what's the response from black people? Mm. Well, from you as, a, as an organisation, you know, and using that phrase. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of iterations of Black Lives Matter has taken place. Um, Blue Lives Matter, which means cops. That's oh, not even a race. Um, but clearly they want it to be. <laughs> Straight lives matter. Um, white lives matter. Uh -huh. And I think what we've seen with uh, when people alter the uh, Black Lives Matter phrase, it is to, uh, to denigrate the phrase. Yeah. It, is a, a, it is a response to um, position themselves um, against Black Lives Matter. Um, and our organization um, over the last four years, you know, I think that first year in and definitely after the killing of Mike Brown and the, uh, the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, we see white lives and all lives matter become mm -hmm. viral as well. And it, it's a response to yeah. Black Lives Matter and it's a way of positioning yourself as, yeah, we don't care about that. We don't want to hear about that. And I feel like it also forces us to have to uh, fall into a trap. It forces us to play into a narrative that's, again, curated for us. Because usually when we hear all lives matter, it's, what well, doesn't all lives matter? And, you know, you're forced to say, no. You know, you're forced to say so yes or no. It's, again, forcing you to de exactly. into a defensive Exactly. Position. And we're forced to actually have a conversation based on context that is curated for us, which stands in stark opposition to Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. which is a curated conversation by us. Mm -hmm. There is another criticism that's been gaining some traction, and certainly politically we've seen a manifestation of, of this. Um, Mark Lilla, who's a political philosopher in the United States, wrote, the most read opinion piece in the New York Times of last year. It was after the election of Donald Trump and he really castigated, he classed himself as a, a liberal in the American sense, means a progressive. And he said the, the problem for liberal politics is it had become too focused on identity and identity politics and that if Clinton in her desire to appease to a constellation of groups, be they women, black, uh, Latino, whatever it may be, had alienated or stopped talking to the deplorables, as she called them, um, who were the, you know, the Wisconsin white unemployed factory worker. Um, and his point is this. If, you, if liberal politics stops being able to speak about a collective we and focus on a collection of eyes, that it will lose power and it will not be able to get power back. And then you stop being able to achieve the broader changes that are going to benefit the constellation of groups that you want to represent. Is there some merit in that? And has there been too much of a swing to a political identity uh, or an identity, uh, politics of identity rather, at the expense of being able to achieve a broader agenda and appeal to people and speak to people across identities? I, um, no, I think that's classic white racist liberalism. Um, and I think part of what we saw very quickly after uh, Trump won was white liberals wanted to blame somebody. Mm. And they blamed black people. 
They blame black lives matter. Donald Trump's in That's line. exactly it. Um, I, don't, I, I can't tell you how many people blame Black Lives Matter and our network. Why didn't you endorse Hillary? It's your fault that we didn't, we didn't win this election. It's your fault Trump is in office. And many of us said, well, why didn't you talk to your family members who voted for Trump? It's actually your fault. Yeah. <laughs> but, I know. but a lot of white people who voted for Trump, or not, not a lot, but a, a number, voted for Obama. Yes. So what do we, how do we explain this? Was Obama the whitest black person they could vote for? Yeah. No, I think, um, I, I mean, we were talking about this before, which is, um, I hate to say this, but w white America is not very smart. And um, it's true, it's not very smart. And time and time again, we've seen uh, white Americans vote against their interest. Um, We've seen white Americans position their identity uh, that actually, and voting for their identity instead of what's going to actually support them. And I think it's important because um, identity politics is actually running America. And the single identity that is literally killing people is white male, white straight men. If we look at Charlottesville, if we look at the rise of white nationalists, it's right, white straight men and it's all about their identity, and it's all about saying that they won't be replaced, and it's all about their fear. And so this false equivalency that identity politics is what um, created uh, Trump's ability to get into office, I just think it's, it's, it's a myth, and it's actually a really dangerous theory, and many of us have been trying to combat it stateside. How do you feel about that, Rodney? I feel like it's, you, you can't really escape identity politics when you're I, the, and there the, is a white identity as well. Absolutely. When, when you're the, the culture, the undercurrents of your society is based on alienating or privileging some. I think that, you know, often I, I remember watching this video that talked about really how um, the landscape of American population has really changed away from uh, the white heterosexual um, uh, Christian family unit, and now everyone else, the others, are starting to actually gain the population and becoming the majority. And I think that you know, whether you're black, whether you're queer, whether you're in the margins, you're migrants, I think that there are so many aspects of people's identities in America that are, that are, that they can't escape, that, you know, there are realities that they really can't just leave at the door, and that, that, that means when you're going to the ballot box, that means when you're talking about issues, that means when you're engaging in community politics or electoral politics, they come with you, you know? I think that, it, it, when I think about the U.S., there's so many incredible ways that, that the culture or the, the politics or the policies create, um, create that sort of division, create that concept of well, straight versus queer, creates mm -hmm. that black versus white. And part of that is once, again, once the playing fields are created in a particular way, you have to engage with it at the ways that it's curated. There is a, another criticism that's come from within... Um, black politics itself, and we know that there is no homogenous black community. It is lacerated with class and gender and a whole lot of other factors. Um, and, and, and particularly coming from older black, black Americans who'd been part of the 60s civil rights movement and saw in your movement a break from the, the, the King tradition. Uh, one, Barbara Reynolds, who you may know, who writes in the Washington Post and was part of that movement in the 1960s, and she, she wrote this... Um, Trained in the tradition of Martin Luther King Jr., we were non-violent activists who won hearts by conveying respectability and changed laws by delivering a message of love and unity. BLM, Black Lives Matter, seems intent on rejecting our proven methods. The movement is ignoring what our history has taught. That King essentially 
was saying that we should be colour blind. It's the content of your character, not the colour of your skin, that there's a living up to the creed of America. Within America, there was the potential for hope and greatness. Um, she's sort of saying, in a sense, that Black Lives Matter is saying, well, no, there is none of that in America, and colour does matter, and, uh, and this is not necessarily about achieving that unity or that, that, uh, and the methods that King would have used. How do you respond to that criticism? Um, we've received that criticism from quite a bit of the old guard. And I, I think what's important is we don't actually come from that tradition. I it, think someone said early on, this is not your grandparents' civil, civil, civil rights, rights movement. Yeah, that no. was Tuff Poe from St. Louis. Mm. That was his quote. Um, and it's true because our tradition is, uh, although we do use um, nonviolent direct action, um, and in that sense, we take from that tradition, but we also come from the Panther tradition, the Black Panther Party tradition. Um, and that's really important to us, um, a more militant stance. Um, we, um, have, we made a decision from very early on that this movement is a decentralized movement, that we're not going to rely on a charismatic male, um, cis, hetero leader that is in the Christian church that many of us have been rejected from because we're queer, because we're trans, because we're women. Um, we, that's not going to be what we rely on. And it, it doesn't make sense for us. Uh, this is a new time period. It's a new era. And I also want to um, challenge the idea that in that time period, there weren't people challenging Martin Luther King. Oh, there were. SNCC yeah. was the, challenged. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, so there, there, there wasn't, that tradition is but one of many traditions that we have utilized. Rodney, does raise the question, though, about what is more effective um, was King more effective than the Panthers? Was King more effective than Malcolm X? Um, was Obama and the fact that he was in the White House, he was there, he was president, um, he was able to do some good things as well. Is that more effective? Do you work in? Do you work outside? I think that one of the things that I really like about this movement is that it recognizes the importance of all, like working inside, outside, through institutions. We recognize that, you know, black folks have been resisting and that there is a culture of resistance, but clearly we're still here. We're still here having the same conversations around police brutality. We're still here talking about um, the deep division that exists, the ways that black folks are relegated to the margins. And I think it was really important for us to, to complicate this narrative that, you know, to be... To, to create a black liberation movement, you really have to reduce it to like the singular black identity. And that, you know, if we fight for the straight, hetero, uh, charismatic, respectable black men, all of us will be free. I think a number of us recognize that we weren't actually included in that narrative and that, you know, our black liberation movements also have to talk about migrant justice, also have to talk about, you know, like our trans and queer brothers and sisters and how we can bring them in the fold. I think that that, that is probably what's... Um, in the beginning was very, um, was very hard for, a hard pill for people to swallow, is that we come to the table and say that blackness is so complicated now, like black yeah. folks across As the board is so complicated and our, our movement tries to respond to that complexity in a way that might seem, um, for some, might seem messy, might seem non-tangible. Uh, non we can't really um, put our finger onto why, what they're really asking for. And part of it is because black folks there's so many different, yeah. you know, black folks come in so many different ways. And just on a final point, on that point, and we'll come to questions in a moment, I'm, I hope that you have a lot. I'm sure you have, uh, you have many questions. Um, you're in Australia. Uh, the movement itself has now grown around the world, if not provided inspiration for other groups as well. You've been meeting with Indigenous groups here. What's your 
observation from the outside coming here, where do you see the connections between the two movements and what they may be able to share, what they have in common in a sense? I mean, you know, we landed in Mildura first after many, many plane rides. <laughs> Extremely exhausted. Uh, and we're heading to Melbourne tomorrow. So um, spending the last week here and, and meeting with indigenous communities, I think there's been two things that have stood out for me, one of which is uh, the colonial project across the world is about um, incarcerating, policing, um, and often killing uh, black people. And I think uh, we've seen that in Canada, we've seen that stateside, we've seen that in the United Kingdom, and we've seen that here. And I think the second thing is that this has to be a global black struggle. Um, the idea that um, civil rights, uh, uh, the idea that um, uh, it's only relegated to the United States, that this is only stateside issues, is um, such a falsity. Um, and that unless we are having this global conversation about anti-black racism and the resistance to it, um, we're not going to see black folks get free. And it's interesting because when we were talking earlier, we were talking about the similarities between uh, Canada and Australia. And there are many, if you look, from one of the things that I'm really learning for well, this different trip traditions. is Commonwealth, Commonwealth countries, um, British know, traditions, British colonization. It's very different. Yeah, remembering the empire. There's, there's, you know, I'm learning about, you know, the stolen generation, and we had a residential school system, similar practice, similar projects, take children from their homes, assimilate them, uh, you know, beat the Indian out of them, that that was the quotes that often were used in Canadian context. I think that, you know, we, we're recognizing and realizing that the systems and our governments are, have been talking. You know, there are policies that influence each other. Police forces train each other. We share resources and tools. And, uh, and for us, resisting, it's important for us to actually start having that conversation mm. as well. As a, as a Canadian, um, just looking at your Canadian experience, is it difficult to align... I mean, you have a different status in Canada to a native mm -hmm. Canadian, yeah. to a Canadian Aboriginal, and trying to align those two movements with those very different histories and different experiences. Yeah. Um, what, what are the challenges there? I think that the challenges are, are mostly looking at there is no real or no sustainable example of, of black and indigenous sustained movement building in Canada. Um, I keep saying that, you know, if you look at past movements, um, folks have oftentimes are, um, to be crass, like fighting for scraps. The governments have said, you know, we're going to give funding to support and, and you know, reduce incarceration rates, but we're going to give it to the black community. We're going to give funding to support the violence, XXXXY. We're going to give it to the indigenous community. And really, again, I keep going back to our governments and our systems curate the conditions for us to resist under. Our movement really tries to flip that. We actually recognize that there, there's enough to be given for everybody. We don't have to fight for scraps, and there's ways that we should be building uh, deep relationships with our First Nations uh, and uh, Aboriginal, uh, Inuit, and Métis folks. Um, and it's re it really is important for us to think of, of our struggles aligning. And uh, there is different contexts, obviously, but um, our liberation is kind of, there's a dependency on each other. Yeah. And of course, Alicia, we'll go to questions right now, but as the United States shows, while it is a Black Lives Matter movement and you're talking about a black mm -hmm. global struggle, there are white people mm -hmm. involved in it and there is a place mm -hmm. for people who are not black yeah. to be involved in that struggle and you've found that in the States. That's been oh, definitely. I mean, I think part of what Black Lives Matter has created is a place and a 
where black people and our allies can fight for black liberation. And, um, and you know, across the United States, there's been uh, emerging chapters of um, other groups, white groups, but other non-black POC groups who've also identified themselves to be in support of black liberation. And, and we say this a lot, and there's a deep belief that when black people get free, everybody else gets a little bit more free. Mm. Wonderful note to finish the formal discussion, but now I'd love to open it up to you. There are four microphones, two back, two at the front. If you could raise your hands and we'll try to um, get through them as quickly as possible. So if you could keep them as brief as possible, then we can, we can get some answers. Let's begin right here and then we'll come over this side. Hello there, excellent talk. Um, how complicit is the attitude of, of indifference in persisting structures of oppression? And furthermore, is indifference an essential part of this system? Thank you. I mean, I, I would like to think, yeah, there's an incredible amount of indifference because I feel like if there wasn't, we, we wouldn't be standing here. Like if everybody was agitated and everybody was down for black liberation, I would just be sitting at home eating mangoes and, and, choreogra and choreographing. So I think that, yeah, definitely there's an aspect of indifference and I think that the state relies on that. Um, I also think that for a lot of people, people don't see this as personal. And I always want to flip that, that actually like liberation of black folks should be a personal mission for everyone. And it's, it's about recognizing and allowing everyone, black folks and non-black folks, to see what their role is in fighting for liberation. And everyone has a contribution to make. It's, it's about kind of putting the onus on people and thinking that it's not just expecting me and you and Don and organizers to be fighting for black lives. It's like every single person in this room. Yeah, and I'll just add to that from a systems perspective. Um, it is incredibly difficult to change a system. Um, once it's been in place, um, once it's sort of locked its machine in, um, it takes uh, just as much time as it was created to undo it. So yes, indifference for sure, because people are lazy. Um, people don't want to change things. Um, systems are, um, are, you have to imagine and recreate something new, and it's easier. It's easier to be uh, complacent. So I think part of the work too is as, as people who are in systems, right, and, and are part of the machines of systems, we have to be um, just as ready to see our system dismantled so it can be rebuilt. There's one, one at the back here and um, behind you and then we'll move to the front and then um, back on the other side. Thank you very much for coming to my campus today. Um, it's very tempting, I think, to see Trump as a reaction to Obama and on a certain common sense level, surely the fact of eight years of an African-American president was a necessary condition for Trump. But I wonder to what degree it's sometimes, well, we might think of Trump as just a symptom of business as usual, or just a version of white supremacy. And so I suppose my question is, when is it more kind of politically efficacious to see Trump as the exception or Trump as the rule? And how should we think about that? Well, I think it's both. Um, I think Trump is the exception uh, because there were lots of um, uh, Republican candidates that could have actually um, went further and be, been the candidate. Uh, but the investment in a Trump um, was necessary for the country in response to not just Obama, but a growing um, Black Lives Matter movement. 
right? Um, the first thing that Trump did when he went into office um, was say this was a law and order country, mm-hmm. that we are not going to stand by and allow for protesters to disrespect law enforcement. The Republican Party and the nation, white nationalism, white supremacy, needed something, someone as vulgar as Trump to sort of swing things back into order. And I don't think they felt like they could have done that with just another run-in-the-mill president, uh, Republican candidate. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, in a famous essay in The Atlantic, said, couldn't the first white president, mm-hmm. in a sense that, yet why was he chosen above all of the other Republican candidates? Because of what he represented exactly. in the tradition of yeah. white supremacy. Yeah. Do you see him, I think that maybe where your question is coming from, as part of a tradition of white supremacy? I think so. I think that, you know, um, like there's a desperation in America. I think there's a desperation in white America. Um, I still am Facebook friends with a number of people I went to elementary and middle school with. Um, and, you know, I came from a very red, southern Florida, like, um, d- district. And I think seeing during the election, seeing folks coming out um, and, and really putting statuses and saying, I'm coming out for Trump, it was important for me to recognize that actually those folks, were, it's not as if they suddenly switched over to these uh, radical, conservative, fascist ideas. You know, these are the people I went to school with. They still had those. I think that, you know, there's a, there's a particular desperation and equality so, so uh, rampant in America and that Trump was seen as, for, for some, maybe a solution to that, maybe an opportunity to go back to how things were. Maybe it's, you know, there's a, there's a fe- I think there, there was a feeling from what I'm seeing from folks that I know that like Trump was the answer in the same way that Obama was the answer for mm. many of us. Mm. And there was a question here, was there? Yes, sir. And then up to you at the back there, sir, next. Hi, uh, thank you for the talk and great to actually meet you this, in this sort of forum. Um, I'm Grant Saunders. I'm from Biripai country up on the north coast of um, New South Wales. Um, in saying that, being proud of being Biripai, of being a part of, you know, a small nation with, you know, a bigger nation that is called Aboriginal, I just wonder what you think, because you were joking about, you know, Blue Lives Matter and, you know, All Lives Matter and all these other, you know, spin-offs of the Black Lives Matter movement. I just wonder about, you know, when we exert, you know, the pluralistic nature of who we are within you know, Aboriginal society or black society. Uh, do you think it's a hindrance to the movement? Um, because, you know, I started a, a thing called Aboriginal Lives Matter. And, I, and in hindsight, I wish I didn't. I wish I called it, you know, Black Lives Matter here in Australia, too. <laughs> um, you know, just to show that, uni- just to show that unification instead of that separateness. Um, you know, we have boundaries here and we acknowledge, you know, our distinctiveness. But should we be really exerting, you know, our uni- unity, you know, rather? Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. There, there was a great line um, from the philosopher Immanuel Kant and he spoke about ending the tyranny of a, of a permanent minority. Yeah. Um, in a sense... I hear what you're saying, in a sense, to move beyond your own particular... And all identity is a construction. To move beyond your own particular small identity to find a bigger common sense of yourself and a plurality. Is that what you... I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? You're working with a, a, a range of groups within Black Lives Matter. It is a pluralist, cosmopolitan movement. It's both. Um, and, yeah, I think 
for blackness. It's, there's a reason why we called it Black Lives Matter and not African American Lives Matter. Yeah. That would have been boring. Um, uh, because the, the three of us um, have an internationalist politic and we see ourselves as a part of a global black diaspora. And I think part of the work here um, and the last you know, several days have not just been, not just been, been about getting the Sydney Peace Prize, but about having a larger conversation with black people here about how we build together, how we grow together, and that there's a long, last, there's a long history that's ar already happened here with black folks coming over. You know, Marcus Garvey being here mm. and having lots of conversations about what Paul it looks Robeson like. Paul Robeson. Um, and, and just lots of conversations about how we understand blackness across the globe and how we are part of a global black resistance. Rodney, uh, but I'll come to the next question. Just taking that a step further, and we touched on this earlier, the, the hope, and I suppose Obama represented that in a sense that you could move beyond even the idea of race yeah. or, or blackness. Um, ultimately, is that the end goal or is that too foolish to expect that you would end up in a world where you are not necessarily divided according to arbitrary um, distinctions of race or colour or ethnicity or whatever that may be? I mean, I mean in a, if I got to flip the switch in an ideal situation, I, I can see how that, that could be a possibility, but reality is that I feel like you know, race has, has now transcended national borders. Like our understanding of blackness is so international and global and, um, and across the board we see race being a factor that, that, a factor into service delivery, a factor into legislation, a factor in the ways that people relate to each other. Incarceration. Incarceration, exactly. So I think for me, you know, one of the things that, that we were talking about last night even is that if you look at it, like whiteness has expanded to, ex to include more folks, exactly. right? Like once upon a time, if you were an Irish migrant, if you were Italian, you, you were effectively considered black. white, yeah, exactly. exactly. You, were, you were the other. <laughs> and then there's a moment where, you know, yeah, okay, like, yeah, come in the fold, you're white too. <laughs> you know, like, oh, come in the fold, you're white. No, no, stay there. So like as, as whiteness has expanded over the centuries, we also have to realize that blackness also has the ability to expand as well. And to me, blackness is like, identifying with blackness is actually having a political home. Mm -hmm. It's recognizing that my experience as a Caribbean migrant is, is different than, uh, than if you were Torres Strait Islander uh, from one of the nations here. Uh, but the ways that we're perceived by our states, the way that our relations to whiteness are similar, mm -hmm. gives us a, a bearing to kind of find similarities. I think as every person of color knows that no matter where you go in the world and you see someone, Ah, there's just not, a, hello. Oh, yeah. you just <laughs> take a little breath. There's That's someone else like me here. You catch their eye and, and you know, well, you, you know who you are. Especially Sydney. I mean, like, we're going to be very honest with you all here, you know, from L.A., from Haiti, Florida, Toronto. So, like, when we go cities like this, it's like, <laughs> hello. Is hey, there another black like, person? Right? Like, so I think that there's, there's, an, there's, a, there's a way that we not, are just in, not only are in solidarity with each other, but there's, a, there's an idea of a global black family that, you know what, like, I see you. Like, I see what's happening. I, I, it's, it's different, but I relate to it. So we find a political home through blackness. Mm. And I don't think you, I just one thought around this. I don't think the idea is that we get rid of identities. Mm. I think what we get rid of is oppression yeah. and, and how oppression, identities are impacted by the oppression. So I, that's not the goal to me. Um, the goal is how do we get rid of racism? How do we get rid of oppression? Yeah. Hello. And then, and then down here for you. Uh, first, con congratulations on the Peace Prize. Thank you. Um, 
uh, we've talked about Obama quite a lot. It seems that black people reject him. White people don't accept him. What is good about him? Oh, I, I, um, I don't think all black... I think he's still really popular. Oh, yeah. when, when he left office, he was a popular president. We didn't reject him. We challenged him. Uh, and, and just like we would challenge any president or any elected official. Um, and uh, I, for, for many folks, they still call Obama President Obama. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, the, the challenge to him wasn't, uh, wasn't a rejection of him. I think it was um, um, a realization that he wasn't going to be our savior. Yeah. yeah, and that brings me to the second question. Is the problem in the U.S. inherently, uh, inherently uh, the, the kind of democratic system that it is right now, uh, which also gives way for someone like Donald Trump to be elected. Mm -hmm. And uh, third question is um, to Patrice, um, the role of white people, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I've been asked many times uh, specifically about this, mm -hmm. what kind of role should white people mm -hmm. play in this Black Lives Movement? Mm -hmm. um, okay. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with, you know, the system that puts an Obama there and the system that puts Trump there, are they effectively the same system, the same flawed mm -hmm. system? Yeah, I, I think there's some serious issues with the U.S. electoral system, and uh, folks have been trying to figure out how to uncrack that for a while, but one of the biggest issues is that we only have a two-party system. Uh, we don't have... Um, we don't and the presidential election is different to the congressional election, mm -hmm. and the role of the president is different to the role of the Congress, mm -hmm. and there are curbs on the power of the presidency. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a multi-layered and complicated system. Yeah. Isn't it? And the state is different than the federal, and the local is different than the state. And so, yeah, part of the work is uh, many people uh, over the last, I would say, decade has been, have been challenging the two-party system, the duopoly. And um, we, see, we saw a bit of a resurgence of the Green Party. Um, uh, but I would, I, I would argue that um, the Green Party didn't do the best job at reaching out to communities of color and poor communities. Uh, and a part of the work over the last, I would say, three to four years is black people in particular trying to figure out, do we abandon both parties um, and do we figure out building our own? Uh, and that obviously takes an incredible amount of resources. Um, you know, elections cost millions of dollars in the states. And so there's... Uh, this drive and need for us to figure out how do we deal with the electoral system and many people have ideas about it but there's no one solution around it. Mm. The electoral college for a start <laughs> could do with yeah. some reform. Um, can, can I go to the, the second question to you Rodney? And the question of what can white people do? It's a, it's a, it's a, I often get asked that here as well and I, I never really know what the answer is. It's a I don't know, what do you do? Yeah. But, 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 but people who are really well-meaning yeah. um, and, and, and feel frustrated and, and powerless, in a yeah. sense, to do anything or to change anything, what can white people do in a movement like this? Yeah, I feel like, you know, if, if you ask any of us, we'll probably have a different answer for you. And if you ask any black folks around the, the world, mm -hmm. folks will probably have a different answer. So for me, I feel like there's two things that I, that I think about when I, when I get asked that question. The first role is in relation to other black folks, non-black folks, in a, when you're addressing anti-blackness, have to follow, right? Often, how many times do we get told, oh, you know, we love your movement. I just feel like, you know, if y'all did this, <laughs> that I, you know, like, 
hold on, you feel like if I did that, mm-hmm. so then it's not like like anymore. Exactly, right? So I feel like, you know, in, 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 in Toronto specifically, we have a variety of different allied teams that work with us. We have Sikhs for Black Lives, we have Asians for Black Lives, we have Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge, which is a, a white allied group, Movement Generation, uh, and Resource Generation, which is a, a white, uh, white group with white folks with class privilege that work to resource movements like us. But generally, the relationship is following. It's what, what, what do y'all need? You know, what, what, what does it look like for us to show up at this action? Whether it's, you know, white folks that actually create barricades for us when there's danger, or white folks who say, you know what, I'm going to go talk to my wealthy family members to support you. Um, I think that there's a variety of different ways that white folks can plug in, but it has to start with a framing of, like, what, what do y'all need at this current context for me to support? I also think that, like, non-black folks, if we're recognizing that violence against black folks happen in the majority of times to non-black folks, y'all are, that's y'all's family members. That's y'all's, like, partners. That's y'all's, like, communities that you live in. And oftentimes, I'm always like, have you had conversations with your racist dad? You know, like, that racist mom that I always interact with? Like, what are y'all going to do to make sure that I don't have to interact with that person? So I feel like, right, like, often, like, white folks talk to each other, really. Like, we always say collect your people, and part of that is with the framing of that it's the role isn't for us. It isn't always just for us to talk to white people and non-black people about the ways that they're racist. It actually is kind of all of us. And it's, it's very complicated too, isn't it, um, Patrice, when you look at the movement and you say, well, the people, it is often black people killing black people. Um, there are black police involved in some of these killings. Um, so the, it's a structure, there are structural issues here um, that are not so easily divided between black and white. And, and w- when you hear people say that, well, you know, black people kill black people. Black police are involved in this too. What's the response to that? Because that's often be the pushback that you'll get from people who are critics of the movement. Yeah, they call it black on black crime. And I mean, we've really challenged that, that myth because um, harm and violence happens within communities. Yeah. So no one's calling white on white crime, although that happens quite often. We yeah. see it in the States yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think the question becomes um, how our communities are resources, resource and how they're not. And so what we've seen often in communities that suffer from poverty, black communities in particular, lots of harm and violence happening to them. And the first people to respond to that harm and violence is actual black people. Mm-hmm. We're the first ones to show up for each other. We're the first ones to show up for our lives. I saw that in Madura, right? As the folks in Madura are running the curry courts. They're like, wait, hold up. Let us be the ones that get to determine how, what happens to our family members and our loved ones. And so black people are always at the front lines of trying to care for our communities, but we're often not resource for that. So we go to local government. We say, this issue is happening in our communities. Help us. You think black folks on the south side of Chicago have been talking to local government about harm and violence in their neighborhoods and how much they need support from the government. But the support they get is law enforcement. The support they get is jailing and policing and that's what we're challenging. That is not actually keeping black communities safer. That's causing more harm and violence. And so part of the work that we really try to push back and challenge is Um, this idea of reinvesting and divesting. Mm -hmm. So we've spent the last 40 years reinvesting into militarization, policing, and imprisonment. 
Um, and that has only allowed for uh, more harm and violence in our communities. We haven't actually dealt with the social ills. We haven't dealt with poverty in black communities. And so we've called for a divestment from law enforcement, a divestment from policing, and a reinvestment into poor black communities. So we're coming up, uh, pushing up against the end. So I do want to get through a couple more questions. There was one I promised here, and there was one that had a hand up the entire time there. I'm sorry. Hi. Um, thank you. Um, I was just thinking what you were remarking about this sense of a, a lineage um, to the Black Panther movement mm -hmm. and, and what we were just discussing regarding internationalism and, and a sense of unity. And it kind of occurred to me that, you know, reading things like Asada Shakur's autobiography, um, her issues with the Black Liberation Movement in the 1970s were very much the patriarchal structure of it and the fact that she felt that, that black Americans weren't recognizing the internationality of um, black issues across, across the world. Um, and I, I really felt, like rereading re it recently, that you guys have resolved a lot of these issues or you're working to resolve a lot of these issues with um, the figureheads of the movement. There's this sense of intersectionality, the allegiances that you're developing with different communities around the world. And so I'm wondering, where do you think the movement now needs to move within itself where the issues lie? Or is this going to be a uh, sort of ongoing work between you and these different communities? Um, and is the beauty of Black Lives Matter and its sort of sense of presency and nowness and simplicity and accessibility mean that actually it's not strategic in that way and it won't have those limitations and then it will be ever-shifting. Well, it was an organic movement and that's, mm -hmm. it hasn't been a structured movement in that sense, has it? Yeah, the movement, I mean, it's, it's both ends. Um, I think what's, what's different about this moment is people are used to seeing a particular type of civil rights movement. We've all been sort of um, shoved in our, our mouths and throats that it's this leader that comes up, these people that follow, it's this single issue that they attack, it's called voting rights, they win it, and then it's over. And it's way more complicated and way more messy. And I think we have um, challenged from the very beginning, um, and we did it in a lot of ways. We did it by just regular old organizing, calling people up and being like, stop behaving that way. <laughs> we also did it by, by writing and, and, and sharing our ideas and putting them on blogs and putting them on platforms that this movement is a fem, black femme-led movement and that we're not seeing uh, and, we're ch and that we are going to purposefully challenge patriarchy and sexism and, and ways that many of our movements of the past didn't and, and possibly couldn't. Um, that we're going to center queer people and trans people, that we're going to have a conversation about the killing of black trans women when the rest of the world isn't, isn't having that conversation. We're going to fight for black trans women because who else will? Um, and, and, and that doesn't mean that we don't get backlash because I promise you, Even you know, within the movement, well, getting people to give up I'm going to talk about that, which <laughs> is, I, there's so many times where I've seen memes where I, it's mostly cis black men who are like, those Black Lives Matter girls and their gay agenda. Yeah. And I'm like, Literally. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know what a gay agenda, agenda. means. <laughs> sure, I'm queer, but like there is, a, there is this um, pushback of it being women-led. And I think 
you know, there are still some places where we have to correct people around who started the movement because people are very tied to a man, you know, or I'll go places and I'll, I'll you know, people, what do you do? I'm one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter and they look at me like, how did you do that? How, by, did, did you think about it all by yourself? Did you, I, it's literally like confused about how black women who've always been the architects of the movement, always, let's yeah. be really clear, yeah. um, how we can be. Yeah, not for that. <laughs> That. So, so in that sense, we have been unapologetic about how we challenge it. Um, but there's still lots of issues, right? We don't, our movement's not in a vacuum. Patriarchy exists, sexism exists, transphobia, homophobia. We're all dealing with our own internalized shit all the time. Um, but I do think the beauty of Black Lives Matter is um, um, we have created a loose enough decentralized autonomous network that we get to decide where it goes and how it grows. The fact that folks are working on an electoral, electoral project stateside, I think it's really powerful. And it really was um, because the, it really is a grassroots effort. We get to decide where, where the vision goes. So I did promise one final question here, and then Simon uh, Jackman will close for the day. Thank you. Hi. So just what you were saying about like a global uh, vision and an uprisings um, and how social media had played an aspect to the Black Lives Matter movement, it just really uh, made me remember my memories of the Arab Spring and how social media was mm. very important in that, in that whole space and how those uprisings were all happening in a global sense and across the Arab world and then how, they all, how they've all settled now. And I'm wondering, are, are there any lessons that we can learn from that um, and share in that, in that idea of an uprising, a collective, decentralized uprising? What could that look like and what we could learn from that? I think that one of the magical things about uprisings is that what happens after. And, you know, similarly, yeah, I, like I mentioned, I was born in Haiti. And in, in Haiti's revolution, which was the first black republic, really... Uh, uh, the, the, the magic of that wasn't just the uprising. It was about what needed to happen afterwards to ensure that not only was there successful organ sustained organizing, but beyond the moment, beyond the action, yeah. that it's not people go home and deal, you know, Go, go home, we're done. So I think one of the things that I really love about particularly the Arab Spring is that, you know, after the uprisings, after you see, saw the tens of thousands of people on the streets, the people in those specific locales would then have to have a conversation about what kind of governments do we want? What kind of, you know, are struggling with debating about what kind of rule do we want? What kind of world do we want to create? And for us, it's really important to always think about this movement as not just being a moment, and that there is importance of rapid response. There is importance of getting tens of thousands of people on the streets to kind of break through that dam. But after you've broken through the dam, you kind of need to sit together and, and envision what kind of new dam do we want to build? What kind of new structures exist and work for us? And that's the stage that I feel like we're at right now. And that, that, that's a great final point to put to you, mm -hmm. because one of the criticisms of the Arab Spring is that Yes, you had mass movement, youth movement. Yes, you had governments fall, but what did you get back? Well, now you've got military rule in Egypt. You've got the war in Syria. You've got Islamic State who have often used the same techniques and the social media to be able to advance its cause as well. After the moment passes, when the mo what is next? Is that where you are at now? I think so. I mean, uh, it's not so linear, but I do think what's important about this question is what Black Lives Matter offers this current moment is an experiment to govern. Um, black people don't, 
are not trusted to govern, are not trusted to self-determine. And Black Lives Matter is a, a network, that a global network that allows us and a chapter structure to really think about how are we going to govern our own communities? How are we gonna support our own communities? And so oftentimes, um, we're often looking outwards to have this conversation, but this to me is a conversation about how we are dealing with one another. Yeah. Because if we, and I, and I, I, I challenge our teams a lot. If we're not thinking about healing justice, not thinking about abolition and transformative justice, yeah. we're going to literally recreate the same sort of systems that we just came out of because we don't know anything different. Yeah. So part of that is doing the work now. How do we build together? How do we um, build these conversations and this practice together? And to me, I look to abolition. I look to transformative justice. And that's what happened in a sense in the Middle East, isn't it? Where people went back to what they'd known and not taking the next step and it's still working its way through. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there always are. There always are. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.